Hi there, I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life magazine. We are on to episode six of season three of the Cottage Life podcast. Welcome. In this episode, we dive deep into a topic that's near and dear to the hearts of cottagers everywhere, loons. Then we revisit an old essay from our regular columnist, David Zimmer, about the cottage sound that he loves best. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. If you know me, you know I spend a lot of time outdoors. Whether I'm camping with my family or fishing in my top secret spot, there's nowhere I'd rather be than in the wild. But we all have to head home at some point. And I'm pretty sure the mosquitoes have put a homing device on me because sometimes they can be just as annoying in my backyard. So when I'm back in the city, I use the Backyard Mosquito Lamp Insect Repellent from Off. Whether I'm hosting a backyard party or gathering by the campfire with my family, the lamp provides mosquito repellency for all occasions. All I have to do is activate the repellent diffuser by lighting the candle and it releases an active ingredient that repels those pesky mosquitoes for up to six hours. Which means I might never have to head inside again. the haunting loon call. It's a sound that no matter where you are when you hear it, transports you straight to the lake. Their call is just one reason why Canadians love the loons, and maybe none more than my two guests today. Cottager and filmmaker Julia Nunez has spent the last few years working on Loons, A Cry from the Mist, a documentary special airing on the Cottage Life channel this fall. Dr. Doug Tozer closely monitors our loon population for his job as Director of Waterbirds and Wetlands for Birds Canada. They join me today to talk about the documentary and the numerous risks that our loons face in cottage country. And they also share with us what we can do to help the loons thrive. Thanks both for joining me on the podcast. Hi. Thanks. It's great to be here. Julia, tell us what gave you the inspiration for looking more deeply into what's going on with the loon population, particularly in cottage country. Well, my husband and I have a a cabin. We call it a cabin, not a cottage, because it's a log cabin in Algonquin Park on Smoke Lake, which is a a lake that has always uh, had a, you know, had loon, a loon population. And uh, I love to be out on my deck. We have a massive deck right over the water and look out and observe the loons. And I just noticed that I wasn't seeing as many chicks on the backs of the, of the adults as I used to. And um, so I, I sort of observed that for a while and thought, well, maybe it's just my lake. Maybe something's happening here. And then I started doing a bit of digging and found that, no, in, in fact, this is an issue, uh, a broader issue. So that's what was the the spark for it. And then I connected with Doug and read up on his research and thought, oh, there's definitely definitely a story here that needs to be told. Yeah, well, then that, I guess, begs the question uh, for you, Doug. Is, is it true? It, it, are there fewer chicks? And, and what's going on with the loons in cottage country? 
It absolutely is. And we know this from our Canadian Lakes Loon Survey, um, Citizen Science Monitoring Program, one of our longest running ones here at Birds Canada. And it specifically targets measuring the number of chicks that uh, common loons produce right across southern Canada. And when we look at those data, um, we find that they're producing about 25 to 30% fewer chicks now on average across southern Canada compared to what they were producing like a few decades ago. So that's, you know, that's a lot. That's, that's a significant reduction. Um, interestingly, about the same number of territories are occupied by nesting adults, though. So it's really something to do with the chicks. And, you know, you could, you, in some ways, you sort of expect maybe that you would see a reduction in chicks first before you see the number of nesting adults uh, decline because loons are really long-lived. Like we know this from color-banded um, adults, loons with uh, color bands on their legs, so we know who they are and how long they live. They regularly live 20 to 30 years in the wild. So, you know, if you start producing fewer chicks, it could take decades, you know, literally, before you see fewer adults out there. But I think we're actually maybe even starting to see fewer adults in places too uh, coming around. Right. Um, I guess... I have a bunch of questions here. Is the is the thinking that the loons, the problem is something that's happening here in Canada, or I know they overwinter down in the in the states. So is there is there the is the problem here or there, or what are your what do you surmise at this point? Yeah, what's causing you know this reduction in production of chicks? It's to be the long story short is we really aren't sure. We have some really good guesses, but we don't have like a smoking gun or set of smoking guns, so to speak, that really speaks to what it might be. Um, and I suspect, my guess, is that it, it's going to be multiple factors, um, you know, sort of the death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. And those factors are probably going to differ regionally even across the loon's range. And there's probably going to be problems on the breeding grounds as well as problems on the wintering grounds as well. And as a lot of folks may or may not know, our lo breeding loons, they go and spend the winter in saltwater on the ocean. So they go to the Atlantic coast and the Gulf coast and they spend the winter there. So there's a whole bunch of threats that they're exposed to when they're on the wintering grounds, um, in addition to stuff that may be happening you know, here in southern Canada when they're nesting as well. If I could just add, um, so uh, we are, have also been interviewing Walter Piper, who is uh, a leading loon researcher in the U.S., and he's the one who does the banding of birds that Doug mentioned earlier, and looking at Wisconsin and Minnesota loons and finding similar declines in, uh, in chick populations, but also finding uh, fewer uh, young adults returning from the wintering grounds. So they go down there after their first season uh, and they stay for, I think it's three or four years before to become fully mature before they come back north and try to breed. And uh, there are plummeting numbers, according to Walter Piper, of juveniles returning. So something is happening to that population. There has not been a lot of research on what happens uh, in the winter. Uh, the loons actually become sort of drab and plain and people don't pay attention to them the way they do up here. And so, but there, I think uh, Doug would agree and Walter uh, believes there is something is going on down South in addition to probably things happening in the North, but something sure. is going on, but there's a need for more research. 
and just to add to that, I think Walter's also finding that um, the the weight or the mass of the chicks in the nesting population in northern Wisconsin is getting lower and lower over time. They're getting thinner. And that really suggests that there's also a problem on the breeding grounds because, I mean, those those chicks hatched, you know, in Wisconsin and they're getting smaller over time. So it really looks like there's problems at, at both ends, so to speak, as Julia alluded to. And I'll really, I think Julia also made an excellent point when she says, it's really a black box. What happens on the wintering grounds? I mean, these loons, they winter, uh, you know, well off the shore. They're far out on the ocean. Um, still in sort of the, you know, what a biologist would call the near shore or whatever, but they're a long distance out and hard to see. Um, and we really don't have a good handle on, you know, what happens with climate change and, you know, oil spills on the Gulf and all kinds of things, the food that they eat and all this kind of thing. There could be all kinds of changes going on and, and effects there that we just don't know about. Yeah. And, and it's so interesting. I mean, Canadians, you know, the loon is on our money. Like We think of our loons as ours, right? And so when you think about them going down to the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, it's uh, it's just not at all how we think of loons. Julie makes a great point. And, and um, perhaps they're not as beloved there as they are here. Um, one thing, Doug, that you mentioned to me a few months ago when we chatted um, had to do with their molting season when they're down, um, you know, floating around in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Can you just explain a little bit about, you know, what, where their vulnerabilities are at that time? Yeah. Um, so what one thing we're really interested in right now is when, when they're on the wintering grounds, they go through a, a molt of their flight feathers. They basically drop all their flight feathers all at once and regrow them all at once. So there's a period where they're flightless, like up to a month, I think, right in mm -hmm. the middle of the winter. And, you know, I alluded to there earlier that, you know, with climate change, if there's potentially differences in the abundance of forage fish that they're feeding on during that flightless period that we don't necessarily know about, I mean, completely speculating here, but if you can imagine if there's a food shortage, it's hard to go somewhere else and find better food when you can't fly. I mean, yes, they right. can swim at, you know, 20 kilometers an hour or whatever it is, <laughs> but it's not very efficient to go fly, you know, hundreds of kilometers over there where maybe there's better feeding when you can't fly. So that's something right. that, you know, that's one really, biologists are really starting to look more closely at that flightless period and, and whether that's where part of the problem is. Right. So you, you've both mentioned about smaller chicks in Wisconsin, and, and are we certain that that's also happening here in Ontario, that the chicks are a little bit smaller here um, in terms of their weight? Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have good data on that here or, or anywhere across southern Canada, but um, one of the next steps, I think, is to start replicating Walter's detailed study that he's been doing in Wisconsin, replicating that elsewhere, potentially in different places, different regions right across southern Canada, and definitely at least in Ontario, maybe even two places in Ontario, so that we could start capturing and measuring um, the the weights and compare them to what Walter's seeing in Wisconsin. And there's also um, a detailed study now in Minnesota that's been running for, I think, a year or two now as well. So, you know, this is what it's like when you have a big mysterious problem like this in biology. you got to start collecting basic data and looking at the patterns. So that's where we're at. Like, we still need to, to gather the data to have the information to even form good hypotheses on what's going on behind this stuff. But, that you know, that's what we've got to do to solve it. So that, that may mean that cottagers will start to see banded loons in the next few years. If you see a little colored band on the on the leg, back leg of a loon, that's that's uh, research, much needed research. 
Yeah, and just a little fun fun aside there, like listeners, you might be like, well, you put bands on the legs of loons. How do you ever see them? They're in the water all the time. But believe it or not, if you watch a loon long enough, they almost always stick their leg up in the air and waggle it. And you can well, you know what you say that, and I think like if there's anyone who's really watching the loons, it's the cottagers, right? You know, Julia again being the perfect example. This is a problem that she first noted when she was on her cottage deck, and I know from my own experience. I, and oftentimes people write to us, oh, we had a family of loons and they came at the beginning of the summer and they followed them all summer very closely. It, it, I think that, um, you know, you're both raising a really good point that I'd love to stress to cottagers, which is like, you're important here. You can really make a difference and, and add to this research. So Julia, talking about banding chicks, do you, can you tell me a little bit about that process? It must be fascinating. Yes, so it's it's really uh, specialized work. So Walter Piper has a team and they go out in the dead of night in the pitch dark in a, a small motorboat and they find loons and they capture them with a net. They just have a spotlight to see the loon in the dark. They got a largely black bird on a, in the dead of, of night. Uh, they scoop them up. They put them in the boat, they take them to shore, and they band them. They also weigh them. They take blood samples. And this is the, the crucial information because, one, especially if they band them as chicks, uh, then they can follow them for a lifetime. Where do they go? Who do they mate with? Uh, how close do they – are they able to return to the – lake that they uh, were born on or a neighboring lake, uh, all of these things. How long do they live? Um, who do they interact with? Uh, all of these things come from that initial banding that happens in the dead of night uh, on a lake. So, yeah, it's, uh, and, and uh, you know, they, sometimes the research, those, those loons have sharp beaks. Sometimes the researchers get bitten. Uh, and, the, uh, what I've learned is that loons have very different personalities. Some of them are quite calm and tame, and some of them will not let a human near them. So that is something also for cottagers to be aware of, um, you know, to be very respectful of the loon's temperament and what that loon will accept, because what one finds okay, another will not. But, um, well, yeah, and I think too, it's important to point out we're not suggesting that cottagers themselves go and no, and, no, and no. get the loons in the dead of the night. Certainly, um, for all uh, kinds of reasons, for yeah. all kinds of reasons, um, <laughs> exactly. Some macro, some micro. I think in that situation. Um, okay, so I think that that then leads us to you know a question that's very important for our listeners, which is you know what what can cottagers do here? There's all this stuff going on with the loons. We're not cr quite sure exactly why. But what we do know for sure is that more information is key. So um, I, I guess, Doug, what I'm, I'm wondering is beyond joining a citizen science program, of which there are many, and you can go to the Birds Canada website, uh, which we'll link to in our show notes to find out lots of information about that. But beyond that, what can cottagers do sort of on a day-to-day -day level to help support the current loon population and even future, future population um, going forward? Yeah, there's a number of, of really simple things that folks can do to help out the situation here. One of the simplest things is just watch out for loons when you're out on the lake, especially if you're in a, a motorboat, um, both uh, chicks um, and nests, because the chicks, especially when they're small, if they get separated from the protection of the adults, 
um, say by, you know, uh, if you're boating along and you don't pay attention and you get between the adults and the chicks, then those chicks are really vulnerable to being eaten by gulls or a raven or something like that. So just watch out and steer around them. Um, most folks, you know, if you're boating back and forth in the same place on the lake all the time, you get to know where the loons hang out with their chicks and just be careful when you go through there. And also in terms of nests, just slow down because like loon nests, they're right at the water level usually. So if you go by really fast in your boat with a big wake, you can wash out a nest and even wash eggs right off the nest in some situations. So steer clear, slow down. Um, fishing tackle. Uh, lead fishing tackle um, is a big thing. Um, negative effects on loons. They, When uh, loons get um, lead tackle inside them, they die of lead poisoning pretty quickly within days. Right. And this is actually where this has been looked at. There's been a lot of... Uh, research done on this in the northeastern U.S. and New Hampshire uh, um, quite a bit. And it's like one of the number one mortality uh, factors for adult loons in that population. It may be similar in parts of southern Canada as well, I bet, um, just because it's similar, you know, landscape. So make make the jump. Make the jump to non-toxic fishing tackle. There's lots mm -hmm. of alternatives out there. They're not that much difference in price and performance, even though, you know, a lot of folks are are maybe a little reluctant on both those things, but that'll make a big difference. Non-toxic fishing. It's tackle. such a simple solution and it can make such a big difference. Yeah. And Doug, you also provided some good tips when I interviewed you about um, how you know if a loon is distressed. When, yes, that's if, a really if good you're getting question. too close. So yep. maybe you can. Sure. We can do that. a little aside on that here. Sure. Um, there's some really effective ways to know like if you're it's always nice to go have a look at the loons right and if you know what to watch for you can do it without getting too close and and causing them stress one thing to watch out for like if you're approaching a loon pair especially if they have chicks or it could be a single loon too if they start to call all of a sudden that's a good sign doesn't matter what of their four different major call types they give if they start to call, you're too close. You want to back off. So calls right. are a good trigger. If they do something called the penguin dance, which is where they um, they get up on their feet, they flap their feet on the water, and they often spread their wings, and they do this in a stationary spot. I have never and heard that before, the penguin dance. The penguin dance, yeah. If you see them start to really thrash around and sit up on the water and flutter their feet and spread their wings, that's that's a sign that they're they're telling you that you're too close. And that if they do that when they have chicks, definitely you're too close. Right. Um, another thing, they sometimes do something called wing rowing, <laughs> where they actually just use their wings and swim at the same time to, to yeah. row across the water really fast. I mean, that's a good, you know, that means they're scared. They're trying to get away from you. You're too close. Um, if you're near a nest, um, if they do this, if they think you're too close, they get down real flat. They put their head right down flat against the ground because they're trying to make their posture, you know, look as unobtrusive as possible. So they're trying to blend into the landscape. So if you're near a nest and the bird puts its head down flat on the ground, you're definitely too close. You got to get back. So those are some tips. I learned that that's called the hangover position. They're just like cottagers. <laughs> But, you know, having said that, those tips will keep you from causing stress. But if if you watch from a reasonable distance, the loons will be just fine with you you being there. It's just as long as you don't get over that threshold and get a little bit too close, you'll be okay. Yeah, I mean, which is the truth for, for all wildlife, really. Like, you you need to give distance. That is uh, such an important point no matter what. So, so Julia, I mean, I you've been working on this documentary for how long now? How long since that first day on Smoke Lake where you thought, hmm... 
Oh, that's a couple of years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it takes a while. <laughs> it does. It does to, to make a documentary. Absolutely. Uh, I, I suspect you have learned so much about loons. I'm curious, is anything, you know, as someone who observed them for so long as, you know, a citizen scientist, a person who's just offering up their own observations to the experts, you know, what have you learned? Has anything surprised you uh, in making this? So many things, actually. It's endlessly fascinating. But um, I always thought that loons mate for life. And I I've always thought that, that too. No, they don't. Doug described it as a bit of a soap opera. They have mm -hmm. divorces, they separate, they reunite, they, uh, they are sort of serial monogamists, not life, not, uh, you know, mating for life, generally speaking. So the social interactions I find really interesting because you tend to think of loons as being out there by themselves or just with their mate, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. It's so true. It's totally, re it's reality TV mixed with soap opera. Absolutely. And like, <laughs> I think there's a statistic out there somewhere that your average loon has three to four partners throughout its lifetime. So it's total soap opera. It's really fascinating stuff. Like if one, if one loon, um, decides to to um, become a rival and try to take over a territory, if it's a male versus male or a female versus female, the partner will just sit back and watch. And then whoever wins, they'll just go with that partner. So you could have been with a loon for, you could have had a mate for 10 years and the other younger rival comes in and knocks out the older loon. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll go with you now. That's fine. Yep, just like that. <laughs> yeah, and also that was another surprising thing because whenever I would see them, they always looked so peaceful and gentle and calm. I had no idea they had this aggression in them, but of course it makes sense. How else yeah. are they going to survive? They have to fend off eagles and other predators and uh, fend off rival loons. So yeah. it's a really good point it, about the violent takeover stuff. Like um, when you know we talked about these loons overwintering on the ocean. When they find, they come back at year three, when they're three years old, and they start looking for a territory. And the way they sort of do that is they pick out sort of 10 or a dozen lakes, and they visit them frequently. And this is something that folks can watch for, you know, when you're at the cottage, you're camping, you're out on a lake. Um, a bird, one of these young birds that's searching for a territory will come in and visit a, t a territorial pair. So you'll, this strange bird will come in and they'll land and the pair will go over and they interact. So this is where you see the three birds together. They'll swim around in circles and, you know, there's no violence. It's sort of, you know, the peaceful loon checking thing Checking each on. other out. Yeah, checking to each other out, nothing too much. And that stranger stay for, you know, five, maybe up to 30 minutes. And then it goes to the next lake, it leaves. And you'll see these visits all the time if you, if you know what to watch for. Um, there's some statistic measured, like your average territorial pair might be visited two to five times per day throughout most wow. of the season. So this is happening like right in front of your nose. But once you know to look for it, you know what's going on. But so the reason like you don't see the violent uh, interactions is because they're really rare. Like eventually one of these young birds will visit and that's the day. It's, you know, it's been testing that male or if it's a female, it's testing the female because Julia said they don't, there's no intersex uh, fighting going on. It's always male, male or female, female. And they decide, you know, that young bird decides, this is the day. This is the day that I'm going to take over this, you know, the the other male or the other female. And it just beats the living, you know what, out of them. And and in the case of male, male fights, uh, when they do, when it does escalate to a fight, a third of the time, 
the resident male gets killed. So wow. talk about, you know, your peaceful loons. Yeah, forget it. No, not <laughs> <Yeah>. at all. <laughs> I tell you what I'm An saying, gladiator. Little, <laughs> another interesting little tidbit for listeners, though, is when females fight females, they almost never fight to the death. It's only males. Oh. Interesting. Well, now I have to ask why that, why you think that is, or or why they, why it's presumed that is. Yeah. So here's something that's this is even more strange than anything we've talked about yet. In loons, for some reason, the males decide where they're going to put the nest. Females do not have any say in this. And the the way we know this is that when there's a new member of the pair, if the new uh, bird is a male, the nest success almost always goes down. But if the new bird is a female, it almost always stays high. And that suggests that if the male is the same male that's been on the territory all along, they know where the good nest sites are. So if it's if the old male is still there, you know, then the pair ends up nesting in a good spot that's safe and the, the success stays high. Um, but if the um the the old female is still there, um, and the new female, the new male comes in, then the success goes down because it's the male making the the choice, the decision there, yeah, and they're ma- making it based on experience. The female has to just go, okay, you're, this is not where you should go, but fine, but you, I'll do she it. has to go anyway. <laughs> yeah, it must be incredibly <laughs> annoying for an old a female that's been on the territory for years who has a new male, and you know, it's like, no, no, don't put it, there. don't put the nest there, honey. <laughs> the raccoons always get it there, but she has to go along with. Yeah. Why the system? Why the system is set up like this is is mind-boggling because you would think the new incoming male would want to take advantage of that female that's been on that territory for years you think he'd want to take advantage of her knowledge to get the nest in a good spot but it doesn't work that way and to carry this back to the violent take uh fights it may be that that knowledge because the males are making the choices on the nest site the knowledge of where the good nest sites are is worth it more to a male to fight to the death for than a female and that may be the simple reason why males fight to the death. Right. They're fighting for best spots in a sense yeah. because they that know That knowledge they are, of the yeah. good nest sites on that yeah. territory may be worth so much more to a male than to a female that you fight to the death for, to keep that territory where you know where the good spots are. Well, I mean, again, I think that uh, more knowledge, I mean, there's so many interesting behaviors. You, you already know so much and there's still much to, so much to know. Um, Julia, I just want to say congratulations on getting this documentary finished. I can't wait to watch it. Um, it's called Loons, A Cry from the Mist. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today and spending this time chatting with me. We could truly go on and on and on, but I really appreciate not just your time today, but the work you're both doing. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. As Julia pointed out in that interview, loons are endlessly fascinating. To learn more about this treasured icon, tune in to Loons, A Cry from the Mist, airing on the Cottage Life channel this fall. For more information on Airtimes and to find your channel, keep your eye on our website, cottagelife.com, or even easier, subscribe to our newsletter, Dockside, where we'll be sharing exclusive content leading up to the air date. You can also do that at cottagelife.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the research we talked about today, consider participating in the Canadian Lakes Loon Survey. Find out more at birdscanada.org. Longtime CL Humor columnist David Zimmer worked full-time on the editorial team at the magazine for 11 years, including a stint as editor from 1998 to 2000. 
For the September-October 1998 edition, he wrote an editor's note to introduce the issue. It highlights a less celebrated sound of summer than the familiar loon call, but it's one of my favorite essays that he's ever dreamed up for us. An Ear for Door Song is read by Pedro Mendez. Much has been written about the properties of sound at the cottage, how the smallest noises can carry a long way on a quiet night. Of those sounds, the slam of the screen door ranks right up there with the warble of the loon as a quintessential sound of summer. At our place, a rambling ex-fishing lodge with eight screen doors at last count, the quintessential doors easily outnumber the quintessential waterbirds. Not surprisingly, my family's ability to deduce the sound of one screen door from another has been raised to a high art, a skill that lets us know who's doing what even when we're tucked in bed or reading on the porch. The two easiest doors to identify are the aluminum storm doors that swoosh out on spring-loaded chains, then swing back in measured time on their hydraulic arms. On a quiet night, their hiss, pause, hiss, pause, smash, travels all the way up the dock and probably a mile upriver. The wooden slammer on the front porch has a different voice, a DIY special that doesn't quite compensate for the porch floor's eccentricities. It opens with a sticky scrape and stays open until forcibly closed. Listening from the hill cabin, you hear the kerplonk of the slammer mechanism opening, the scrape of the door on the floor, then the bump to bump of footsteps down the stairs. Pause, muffled curse, footsteps back up the stairs, another scrape, a closing kerplonk, and then a final trot down the steps. The screen door on the back shed off our kitchen behaves like a cross between a wooden slammer and an aluminum eyesore. It kerplonks, just like a real door, but its springy chain stretches taut and whips the door back again. In the quiet of the night, it can be identified by its dead-sounding slam. Kerplonk, the guitar-tuning noises of the spring stretching, then kerplomp as it thuds shut, followed by the rattling of basins and washtubs against the shed walls. Years ago, we used to have another screen door leading off the other side of the front porch down towards the lower cabin, a slouching piece of cottage architecture whose wobbly door needs two spring slammers, a swift kick, and a cuss word just to close properly. You could actually follow the audible trail of someone leaving the lower cabin, entering the old front porch door, heading into the cottage, and exiting out the back shed by the cacophony of carplonks, scrapes, hisses, smashes, kathumps, and wash basin rattles as they pass through a series of four screen doors. Our cover story this issue is Grand Slam, Charles Long's instructive article on how to build your own classic cedar screen door. In fact, it's such a fine door that I actually toyed with the idea of replacing some of our geriatric slammers with nice new models. But Charles's article makes no mention of the door's particular intonation. Is it a high and hollow whap, like the door on our hilltop cabin? Or is it more of a backshed kathump? Could a brand new mechanism possibly reproduce the rusty katank of my old cabin door being opened? Would it scrape just so, letting us know someone had gone to read on the porch? A bunch of new screen doors would probably just keep me awake all summer, as I tried to figure out their individual voices. Or, worse yet, 
what if they made no noises at all? Without the reassuring sounds of familiar screen doors, I'd be lost in the woods. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. You know, some cottagers are all about the view. Me? I embrace the smells. Whether it's the scent of conifers after a good rain, or the Canadian bacon in my cast iron skillet. And that's why I like to use off gentle insect repellent during my outings. This deep free formula isn't oily or greasy. You won't even know you have it on. And it's odor free, so I can enjoy every breath when I'm outdoors. So I can focus on the smells of nature without hearing the sounds of mosquitoes when I'm in the woods. For this week's birthday message, we change things up a bit. Instead of asking a reader for their thoughts on the 35th anniversary, we called on one of CL's most dedicated employees, Rena Bennett. Rena has worked for the brand for about 25 years, almost as long as she's owned her treasured water access cottage, which she visits all year round. She is indeed one of the most dedicated cottagers that we know. So who better to ask for reflections on the magazine than her? Thanks for your kind words, Rena. I have learned so much from cottage life over the years. Um, I, there's too many things. Uh, how to winterize the boat motors, how to secure the floating dock, how to rig up running water in the winter, how to play six-handed euchre, how to entertain kidlets, how to share the property with rattlesnakes, beavers, bats, and flying squirrels, and yes, we've had them all. And most of all, how to have a great time. Thank you, Cottage Life, and happy birthday. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast so that each new episode will be automatically downloaded to your app and ready for you to enjoy. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer. And please leave us a review. It helps more people find us. And speaking of subscribing, let me share a few reasons why you should subscribe to Cottage Life. The magazine offers you more of the same great content that you heard today. Everything you need to know to make the most of your time by the lake. And by supporting the magazine, you are also supporting this podcast. So podcast listeners get a special deal. Subscribe today and you'll get six issues plus a free copy of our amazing Cottage Spaces booklet, which features our favorite cottages from 35 years of publishing. All this for just $24.95. To sign up, visit cottagelife.com slash podoffer. Our sound design is by Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by Catherine Junt and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock. Thank you.